the new experimentation platform or the current one we use, it benefits from a lot more of that kind of complex reasoning, whereas ABBA was just more simply straightforward, like a feature flagging system. Some random assignment plus some reasonably good logging. Welcome to Nerd Out at Spotify, where we bring you behind the curtain of the world's most popular audio streaming subscription service. Machine learning, open source, clouds, tabs versus spaces. We'll talk to Spotify engineers about interesting tech issues, big and small. I'm Dave Zolotuski, principal engineer at Spotify. One of the ways we describe the software development process at Spotify is think it, build it, ship it, tweak it. We want to try out ideas quickly and iterate on them even quicker. We want to see what works, see what doesn't work, and keep trying new things based on what we've learned. So how do we know what works and what doesn't? Testing. Specifically, A-B testing, where we split our users into groups, and some get a new feature and others don't, so that we can compare their results. Sounds straightforward enough, but when you have more and more teams testing more and more features, all in the same app, all across a growing user base, things start to get weird. You have to make sure your tests are scientifically sound. You have to be able to turn the test data into actionable insights. And you have to do all of that while making sure your teams aren't running into each other, messing up each other's tests, or slowing down development. How do we know this? We learned it the hard way. We lived it. Today, we're talking to Mark Gray, a 10-year Spotify veteran. He was there to see our earliest efforts at product testing, all the way to the homegrown experimentation platform that we use at Spotify today. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. In this episode, we're only going to talk about the beginning of that journey, our very first A-B testing platform, which we very cleverly called ABBA. And before we get to that, as always, it starts with the data layer, but we'll let Mark tell us more about that. Hey, Mark. It's great to have you on. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? For sure. My name is Mark Gray. I am a senior staff software engineer at Spotify in the platform mission and specifically in the learning infra studio. It's like the part of the company that focuses on all of our applied usage of data. So things like ML, experimentation, analytics, everything sort of within that organization. Cool. So let me break that down a little bit. What does it mean to be a senior staff engineer? A lot of Google Docs, for one thing, <laughs> a lot of architecture docs, a lot of building team consensus on complex projects. I do get to do some coding here and there, but a lot of it is working between squads, doing architecture and systems design, trying to uh, find risks early where we can in the design and kind of mitigate them. What sort of things does that mean kind of day to day, aside from coding? What does it mean to like focus on architecture? Yeah, so working between teams talking with them about potential systems design issues that they foresee, looking for integration opportunities. A lot of it is trying to nail down places where we might be duplicating work, where there might be like a technical capability like feature flagging that could be separated from experimentation. I imagine we'll get to talk about that today. Yeah, those types of things. So the places where we might platformize some capability that could be shared across systems, that comes up a ton. I want to ask you a little bit about your history at Spotify, because I feel like you've been here a while. Sure. So can you just tell us a little bit about kind of how long you've been at Spotify and other stuff you've done before you were in learning infra and in this senior staff role? So December this year will be my 10th year at Spotify. I joined the company working on, at that time, our like data warehousing infrastructure. So back then, this would be like Hadoop, HDFS, Hive, everything related to doing the uh, ad hoc SQL-based workloads. HDFS is the Hadoop distributed file system. It's the mechanism by which all the various data that we would collect would be appear to the end user as one storage, one file system. 
so we manage the Hive infrastructure, some of the UXs for accessing that, writing queries, doing analysis. Then got into a long period of working on both experimentation and concurrently our cloud migration. So migrating those same workloads into GCP. The main focus there was BigQuery, huge force multiplier for us, 10x our productivity with those sorts of workloads, uh, but also maintaining our A-B testing infrastructure at the time, since that was a, a, a big use case for ad hoc analysis. And then once we were complete with that journey into the cloud, spent a lot of time focusing just on experimentation infrastructure, sort of the topic that we're talking about today. And now I'm back in a big circle on analytics, working on our <laughs> analytics offerings, making those diversifying a lot of our OLAP infrastructure. Let me start from the last thing you said. What is OLAP infrastructure? Yeah, so OLAP, online analytical processing. These are like the types of tools where you would do large shuffle-bound queries over data that you're aggregating, subsets of columns, summing, taking averages, whatever it might be. But usually it's a human agent doing it who's interested in analyzing like traffic from the application, streaming activity, how people interact with various kinds of content, that sort of thing. So let's dig a little bit into some of the tech you talked about on the way. Like you said, you started with kind of Hive and Hadoop things. There was a bunch of cloud migration. You talked a little bit about how cloud migration, like 10x productivity. Can you talk a little bit about like those technologies and how this cloud migration could have that drastic of an impact? Yeah, so long, long ago when we were using Hive, and this would be the full Hive stack atop Hadoop, most of the SQL that people were writing in those days was either running in relational databases like Postgres, where you could process data pretty well for an analytical workload. If it fit in memory, you'd have to scale those workloads vertically in a single box. And our distributed processing equivalent was Hive. So that would have to spawn MapReduce jobs running Hadoop. And these could be arbitrarily large given Spotify's data volumes. So take anywhere from maybe 30 minutes to some, as long as a day even to get a response back. So your typical like A-B test analyst would be interacting pretty heavily with that infrastructure, writing SQL, trying to extract metrics from both experiment exposure and like user activity to understand how our tests actually improved our product. But it would be a, a pretty slow process back then. And BigQuery offered you know, a much, much, much faster execution environment for doing that kind of analysis work. I got you. Can you give me a couple of examples of just like what some of these jobs are? Like what is the sort of thing someone's doing that they then wait 10 hours to get an answer for? Yeah, so in those days, a lot of it would be like analyzing and drilling down into streaming activities. So like to take a contrived example, like maybe a metric would be our sum total consumption time is what we're interested in driving up. Or maybe like consumption time from content from playlists or a certain feature. So there's a lot of filtering down the user activity on what feature it came from. But then also you probably need, you need to sum that over the entire population that was exposed to the test. So join it to test logs. And then also afterwards, you usually have to drill down into some more granular views on that. So maybe you're interested in one market was disproportionately affected by this test, either negatively or positively on that consumption time metric. So there's a lot of like very iterative ad hoc query, go back, query again. And when each of those cycles can take an hour even, it, it can be pretty costly to do. So a lot of our effort was focused back then on optimizing that, just optimizing the raw analysis portion. So that's the sort of thing that moving to BigQuery made significantly faster. So instead of an hour per one of these kind of questions, it would be, I don't know, minutes? Tighter cycles, seconds to minutes, and much, much faster turnaround. So initially when you were talking about that, I was thinking this was a lot of just like analytics across the entire user base, like, I don't know, 
how many minutes did people in the United States spend listening to artist X or something like that? But you mentioned a lot of this is really based on tests. Can you elaborate a little bit like what tests means in this case? Yeah, so they're typically throughout the history, we're talking like a A-B test, so a controlled experiment. We're splitting the populations of users into two groups, two or more groups even, where we have a control, just like a clinical trial, and then the test group in the simplest setup. And the test group is going to get the effect of the test. So it could be any kind of change to the user experience or like different content we're serving. And then we're going to measure the metrics and compare between the control and the test group. And that's the portion of the operation that involves joining the experiment exposures and trying to derive those insights. And then just applying standard statistical tests. That's what things like Z-tests. So I guess this like test in this case is a like A-B test, that kind of experimentation on the product with real users kind of stuff, and then understanding how those experiments like impact user behavior. Exactly, yeah. And then could take a few different flavors. I mean, some of these would be like user experience tests. Maybe we change the way the UX flows for the playlist view. But then there were also things like content-based tests where we're swapping out maybe what we recommend in the radio feature, that sort of thing, where it's more about the actual content we expose. Yeah, there's a lot of different kinds of experimentation we do at Spotify. So it could be really represented anywhere there's a fork in the path, so to speak. Oh, that's cool. I always thought of this more of as Google picking the right shade of blue sort of thing. Like we test, I don't know, 100 button colors and see which ones work. But there's a lot more than that to it. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Tell me a little bit more about kind of the evolution of experimentation at Spotify and the kind of tests we do beyond button color type things. Yeah, so beyond just the standard like user interface experimentation, the button color example comes up a ton. There are things like content-based tests, so we're changing out maybe the stuff that we recommend, and that's usually involving a lot more user context, so a lot more about that individual person's activity. There's different kinds of testing that go on with uh, ML. We're testing out different models in production to see whether one optimizes streaming signals like consumption time or user activity or how often a user reactivates. There's other kinds of testing we do with multi-armed bandits, optimizing on the fly for the best user experience. But yeah, mostly I think we're pretty much fully represented in like the user interface portion of the problem and content being the two major types. And then there's some stuff in the ad stack optimizing for ad consumption. Yeah, I think those are the big categories. Cool. I think before I dig into one of those, I need you to explain what multi-armed bandits are because you said it and I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, so a multi-armed bandit is a popular optimization approach wherein you basically have the same kind of setup where there's multiple different configurations that you're serving to the user, but you're recording the success signals in real time and actually optimizing the experience to pick the right one. So as opposed to an A-B test, like the bandit-based approaches, it's less about deriving a insight and more about adapting in real time. And you're generally less predisposed to like applying a statistical test to that. You just want to optimize the experience. Do you have an example of like a real-world situation where we're doing this and what some of the options are? Because like I can picture the button color thing, obviously, but I don't know how to picture like where in the Spotify app is there a multi-armed bandit and what's it doing? I think one place where you really pretty frequently encounter them as maybe between different recommendation models. So different kinds of machine learning algorithms that we're maybe pitching at the same problem. And you want to just gradually kind of anneal towards what seems to be the optimal experience that's increasing consumption. I can't imagine that we just woke up one day and started doing all of this stuff. And you've been here for 10 years. Can you kind of walk me through the, the early days of experimentation and how we started to build up towards everything you just talked about? Yeah, for sure. 
I think when I think back to the earliest period, it was largely focused entirely on A-B tests. And I think the defining characteristic back then was that we were actually doing the assignment and randomization on the end user device. So there'd be a little random number generator ran on your phone when you logged in and the tests were shipped along with the application and you'd be assigned into one or the other experience entirely on your device. That had some you know, interesting constraints that were part of the course for the period. We could only ship tests as fast as we could ship client releases. We couldn't remotely change the experience. We couldn't remotely spin down the test or restart it. And we were entirely relying on eligibility at that point. So we knew roughly what you would get based off your user data, but we just had to assume you were exposed to it once you were in the test group. So we would reproduce the same randomization upstream in the back end, and we'd say, oh, Dave was in the test. We don't know if he got to the playlist where the button changed color, but he's in the test. Where do we go from there? What were the, I guess there are probably some obvious, I don't know, constraints there, but kind of walk me through us hitting some of them and like evolving from there. Yes, I think a huge one there maybe is a little self-evident nowadays, but the ability to remotely control that experience, start the test, stop it, change the experience remotely, pretty important given that we want to react quickly to signals that we see. So that was a big thing that ultimately ended up driving the ABBA system, was creating like a remote feature flagging capability. I think the other parts that would come next during that period is actual exposure logging. So shipping SDKs within our client applications, wherein like when you ask for the test value, is this button green or blue? That would trigger a message that we could actually track to say, oh, Dave actually saw the green or blue button. So getting a little bit closer to the pulse of the thing actually under experimentation. Those were the two main deliverables that then drove the next phase, which was the ABBA system. Tell me about ABBA. Yeah, ABBA was a system that we built up, great name. But yeah, ABBA was a system we built that was largely back-end driven and essentially functioned as the feature flagging system for Spotify. Uh, Users could define a test, like a string identifying the test unique identifier, put that logic in the application, the end user application, or in their backend service, and use it to do that exact kind of switching between logic and total freedom there with how they would utilize that. We would serve back the values they had defined for that flag. Test implementers, Spotifyers, implementing user experiences and stuff would decide how it's used. And asking the service for the value would treat the user as exposed. So there was also like a logging component for tracking. What is feature flagging? Yeah, so feature flagging is usually refers to the remote ability to change the user's experience, you know, on the basis of some configuration that's maintained upstream in, in the back end. So turning various parts of the experience on and off, controlling user traffic to different aspects of the experience, or parameterizing things like ML models, like we mentioned earlier. I mean, it sounds like we're doing feature flagging, tracking who got which feature flag, and then building a way to do some analytics off of that. It sounds like a pretty, I guess like a pretty fundamental piece, but also like a thing that I would expect existed in a lot of places at the times. Why build this thing ourselves, aside from the fact that we have this awesome name? Yeah, so I think one of the big things that comes up in that context is the offline behavior of the Spotify app. We have, at that time and still, the ability to play music and interact with Spotify, even when you're not connected to the internet. 
using like cached music and stuff you've previously listened to. So we needed to account for that in the design of ABBA's client libraries. We couldn't rely on a synchronous connection. And that was a feature of a lot of A-B testing infrastructure at the time was sort of the request response interaction pattern, super common in that period more like web-based design, we had to design into our existing protocols for handling that offline negotiation. It was pretty important. And then also integrating with our log delivery systems. So Spotify has very complex needs when it comes to event delivery, event collection, making sure that we integrate directly with those, reliably dispatch these exposure messages, collect them into that Hive system I mentioned and allow people to analyze. A lot of custom integration there. Tell me about this event delivery system. Like, What's so special about that? Yeah, so Spotify's event delivery system is essentially where we collect all the user activity that's going on from the perimeter. So whenever you interact with anything in Spotify, you're to some extent logging some messages that we use to improve the application that we use to optimize your experience. And the event delivery system is the scalable infrastructure that is responsible for collecting all of that, fanning it in together, and creating a composite view that our analysts, data scientists can interact with to understand how Spotify is behaving in the wild. That makes sense, but it makes me think the same thing I asked about ABBA. Isn't this a pretty standard thing that everybody wants to do? Like, why are we building our own here too? I think there too, it also comes down to a little bit that we were early to the game with these kinds of scale needs. We had built up a lot of our own infrastructure at the time for actually processing the data. And so integrating directly with that in a global way, there's... There's much better tools for that nowadays, but even that system too, we could probably do a whole podcast about the many iterations and challenges it went through along the way. Yeah. Oh, we probably will. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about the evolution of ABBA, like some of the things that we added after feature flagging and analytics fundamentals. Yeah. So my team comes to ABBA, I think it was around 2014. And it's actually an interesting story because there had been some major incidents and delays with data. So some reassignment of folks on the Stockholm side actually led to a situation where we situated ownership of this A-B test infrastructure in New York with my team in New York. Because it, again, like the analysis process, the analysis users internally are the main users of this system. So it made sense at the time to consolidate that ownership and allow people in Stockholm to just focus on the underlying processing infrastructure. So that's that, That's really where I come, myself and my team come into the A-B testing mission at that time. And the critical thing that we're trying to do at that time is like scale our event processing and data processing infrastructure. So we in, inherit ABBA, we maintain the feature flagging service, we build out all the necessary stuff to keep that up and running and reliable and integrations with various clients as we expand on more and more devices. Yeah, and I think the main things that get added to ABBA in that period are like the exposure logging We also integrate some automated analysis, so the ability to actually drop into the web view and see some results for some core company metrics. That was a feature that was added at the time. So saving people the trouble of going and handcrafting those eight-hour jobs where the metric of interest was broad enough. So just trying to make it do more of the things that we need across Spotify. Tell me a little bit more about when your team inherited ABBA. You talked about it coming over from a Stockholm team and the Stockholm team having a whole bunch of other things they were getting pulled into. What was going on and why did that have to happen rather than, I don't know, your team doing the Stockholm team stuff or something else? Yeah, so this is a period at Spotify Data Infrastructure, colloquially known as the Summer of Incidents. At this point, we're approaching the physical limits of things that we can store in our own HDFS cluster. We're just reaching the upper limit on our hardware and we constantly need to provision new machines and try and catch up 
on our log collection and processing. So a lot of the folks who had been working on ABBA on the Stockholm side of that, it made sense for them to pivot and focus on responding to that problem. I got you. I guess limits of HDFS are limit, like we didn't have enough hard drives or HDFS as a concept has limits regardless of how much hardware you have. Both to some extent, but mainly the upper limit on storage on hard drives. Yeah. So at this point, we're running in a data center in Europe for everything for our Hadoop cluster. So all the data that we fan in is going there. And we just need enough machines, enough, in some instances, spinning platter drives to store <laughs> all the stuff that people are doing at Spotify. Yeah, so you can imagine that's like a, a red alert running up a, against that upper limit. And most of the teams, so, so data infrastructure at Spotify at this time, it's probably about 100 people, I would say. And most of the core like storage teams are in Stockholm. So lots of folks there. It made sense for them to co-locate in one place to respond to that. And the A-B testing mission fit my team, maintaining the data warehouse interfaces and a lot of the same internal users, analysts, data scientists doing tests, made sense to consolidate that mission to us in New York. I got you. And that's just so that there were more bodies in Stockholm that were co-located with the deeper storage expertise that could really dig through all of these crazy low-level storage issues. Totally. And just even being in the same time zone to have those discussions you know, on the same work schedule, huge benefit for them. I'm, of course, picturing that we now needed more teams to like carry hard drives into a data center because you said that was also in Europe. And whether that's true, I'm going to stick with that mental image. <laughs> and then can you tell me a little bit about what ABBA actually is as a system? Like, is it a backend service? Is this like a bunch of client-side logic like the previous systems? What is ABBA? Yeah, so ABBA was mainly made up of many, many SDKs or even just lightweight clients in the end-user devices. So this would be like a Spotify app running anywhere from maybe your phone, an Alexa speaker, or a TV. And that had a remote back-end service component that would do the randomized assignment. That was the assigner that was lifted out of the client-side implementation at that time. And that system would respond with what test assignment you should get. So Spotifyers would be continually updating the state in that system to define the tests, and that system would perform the assignment. And then the log delivery system collects all the insights from that, delivers them to our data processing ecosystem, and then ABBA's own data processing jobs would go ahead and aggregate that together in a structured way and produce that metrics view. From what you're saying, it sounds like a lot of the craziness was because there were so many clients and so many differences on that side. And then once you got the data, I mean, I don't want to say it seems like terribly straightforward, but it seems like a lot of the same sort of like, you run the data jobs, you gather the analytics, but like, is that like a completely... I have no idea how complex the other stuff is type interpretation, or is that a little bit like what ABBA actually was? I think it's close. And I think it definitely is true to say that as we expanded on more and more devices with a very different like user interaction patterns, it complicated things a lot. And that was always a piece of complexity that we had to respond to in ABBA. But at a high level, yeah, I think the assignment portions really had to negotiate the differences between these various devices. And the metrics challenge is almost always primarily one of giving the right balance of ease of use and flexibility and drilling down and investigating experiments. I think that latter part is where, over the years, we really had some challenges where the cloud made it a lot easier to respond to that sort of data processing complexity. How did the cloud make those sorts of things easier? Yeah, so throughout 2015, 2016, my team helped out a lot with the migration into BigQuery. And so we had the ABBA system and we're maintaining the feature flagging and assignment services. But the most important thing that we had to do is get those 
roughly eight hour data jobs down to something more reasonable so we can iterate more quickly. And migrating into BigQuery is really the thing that kind of created the conditions around the data processing for ABBA, where we could really derive good test insights, get them quickly, perform them at seconds to minutes latency, respond to those kinds of incidents or issues that we would find with experiments. I think it would even be accurate to say before that point, we didn't really have the kind of speed and throughput to really react to problems with the tests. So sample ratio mismatches or groups not reliably receiving the configuration. It's funny, we, we, we as we built up the capability to actually query with those speeds in GCP, we found the problems with the way we were signing some devices and some of our <laughs> feature flagging systems. So it's, it's sort of one effort enabled the other, and then you find the problem because now you have the power to perceive the problem in production. So I guess it's almost more like the speed of cloud and the same thing we talked about before of like 10x-ish or whatever. The difference was just made it that much easier to find the problems because all the cycles would get shorter. And it wasn't necessarily that like, I don't know, cloud magically exposed them or fixed them. It's just humans had more time to poke around them. Yeah, Anything we would try to do to get those eight-hour jobs faster would to some extent involve in the old days us spinning hardware to respond to it. And that's really (laughs) the thing that we moved into GCP and made a lot easier. We don't have to dedicate effort on Spotify's side to that as much. You know, we would buy it from Google and getting faster is, it becomes the cloud. So were there a lot of interplays between the cloud migration and experimentation or, I don't know, the growth of data, the impact of how much faster things were in the cloud? Like, did that really impact ABBA and experimentation much or were they kind of almost independent things, just both things that lived within your team? I think for BigQuery and ABBA itself, the user overlap within Spotify is almost a full intersection. So yeah, I think the main thing that happened here is like having that ability to process data that quickly and that interactively, especially, it increased people's confidence with analyzing tests and it increased their level of ambition to like really drill down into the results and understand them. So, you know, we started where before, because it was eight hours, you'd get the best insight you could from the job that you ran and you maybe pursue additional insights only so much given how costly the process was. With BigQuery, people were a lot more apt to drill down into behavior in different markets, devices, and really understand what was going on under the hood. So I think that was the main change. So we get that raw power and speed of Mm -hmm. processing data. And from that, it fuels a deeper interest and a deeper ambition about how to actually interact with tests and understand them. And that's then the thing that helps us grow and understand the product a lot better. That's really interesting, too, because there's yet another dimension of growth. And it seems like we're adding all these dimensions, but then we keep coming back to it was on top of ABBA. So, like, why ABBA? I don't know. It seems like we had this fairly basic system, but anytime people did experiments, they'd keep coming back to this same system instead of saying, I don't know, we now have 10,000 TVs or we now have BigQuery. So ABBA's not cutting it. So we, I don't know, are just going to switch to some other thing. I think a lot of the complexity is actually integrating into the various experiences in one centralized way. So these experiments very often, they need to run in the same way in the app or to some extent the same way in a TV, the same way in a speaker. And yet we're very autonomous at Spotify, but it'd be quite hard for any one-off team that's doing a certain kind of experimentation to adopt a wholly different platform for that reason, because they'd have to account for integrating it in all the various end user experiences as well. So ABBA was the one, at that time, because it had been around for a while, it was the one place where you had that kind of chain of supply to all the overall Spotify experience. So like regardless of 
how basic it was or if it was missing some functionality here and there. Like It just tied all of these things together. And that made enough of a difference for anybody that kind of really wanted to do any experiment. Yeah, I was often said at that time, but for all its faults, it was the one place where I could turn this on and off and look at the phone and see it change in real time. <laughs> and that is an indispensable capability for a mass market media app like Spotify. So let's go back a bit. You talked about building ABBA and some of the components are ABBA. How was transitioning to ABBA? Like, how do you get from the previous system where everything was on device and the randomization and assignment was happening there to actually using ABBA? Yeah, so one important consideration there is that we actually had to forklift the same randomization logic. So there were some compromises made in that original client-side implementation of the randomizer to keep the test complexity you know, the complexity of processing what user was exposed to what tests within the reasonable bounds of what we could compute in hives. So at a super high level, this is like there are a thousand buckets into which users could be randomized, and then the buckets would be shuffled between the two test groups, where you could today just say it's a million, and there's much better <laughs> test isolation between experiments, like populations randomize a lot better. But because we needed to keep in-flight tests from the client-side period, assigning reliably as we moved into the backend driven one in ABBA, we utilized the same randomizer. You could configure it, but we couldn't really change it out. Otherwise, users would shuffle into new groups and tests that were in flight during the migration period wouldn't be analyzable or meaningful. So that was one thing where we kind of needed to forklift into ABBA. That was one piece. I guess part of me wants to say, like, why is that such a big deal? I guess it's just the tests that are running during the migration, but then the decision affects tests forever. So what's the big deal with the tests that are running right now? Part of the consideration there was test coordination. So at that time, we had a lot of feature flags that were only used to configure holdout groups or split users one layer above the actual treatment. So in this setup, you can imagine we're setting the randomizer to have the same salt for two experiments, but only one of those experiments actually changes your button color. And the one ahead of it in the logic, when the user goes to instrument it, would just control whether the person's eligible or not, but also with a random assignment. So those holdout groups can last as long as months because they're used to you know, analyze seasonal differences between user behavior. So maybe I want to keep a group of users not exposed to a group of A-B tests so that I could come back and analyze them against this last six months worth of testing that I had done. So individual experiments, maybe a two to four week horizon line at that period, but those holdout groups could last as long as a year. So it's not like I just, oh, well, whatever, the things that are running this week can suffer because this week's the deployment. It's really like a much stickier thing than that. Exactly. That's crazy. That's like a very different thing than just deploy the next version, we're good. Totally. And I think another consideration there too is just the sheer number of places that we had instrumented that randomizer. A lot of analysis tools would rely also on reproducing that on the fly as part of like ad hoc analysis. So there's just a, a very large scope of things that we need to migrate off that assignment. Before I forget, one thing you said that I didn't catch, you talked about holdout groups or something like that. What are those? Yeah, so a holdout group, usually this is used in the context I mentioned about like seasonal analysis. So you want to withhold your experiments that you're running from a certain subset of users so that they can form the basis of a comparison down the line, either as sort of a control group that compares the past six months or years of experimentation we've done, or as a control group that's maintained separate from all those tests to be used in a subsequent A-B test. So 
yeah, sometimes you need to coordinate the experiments to keep an exclusive group of users that aren't exposed to a group of experiments that you have in flight. I gotcha. I'd want to ask more questions about that, but I know so little about the statistics that I'm not even sure what to ask. Let's go back to the story of how you came to own ABBA. You talked about kind of a bunch of data incidents and then the system transitioning. Tell me a little more about that, both from the ABBA point of view, but also just how does like transferring a critical system like this even work? Yeah, so back during that period, we transferred the ownership of the system. The team from Stockholm came over to visit And then we went over to Stockholm once as well, our team, and just collaborated on the knowledge sharing, getting up to speed on all the operations and monitoring that was in place, getting up to speed on the code base, the tools that were used to do it. I think our team at that time, we were quite proficient at maintaining the Hive ecosystem, the dashboarding ecosystem, the query console that we had at this time for writing SQL. But if you think about that, all of that is internal facing tools. They're things for Spotifyers. So in terms of actual activity and traffic that they see were constrained by the number of employees at the company or whatever. So ABBA was my team's first real opportunity to own a system that was called in the critical path in the Spotify end user app. So over a period of like three or four months, we really had to ramp up on understanding the operations on that and making sure it was available, especially since it was called during the login flow. So you know, we want to keep the login flow as fast as possible. It's very frustrating when people have to stare at a spinner when they start the app. So yeah, that was that was an interesting thing and came at a point relatively early for me in my time at Spotify that it was a really good learning opportunity to understand that. Yeah. Was there anything in particular from that? Like how different is the experience of owning those systems really? I think primarily it's in the operations, so like on call in the maintenance of continuous monitoring, understanding how your changes affect the end user flow. So monitoring things like P99 latency, error rates, making sure that the continuous health of the system is maintained. So yeah, a lot of stuff with regards to maybe we could fly a little bit by the seat of our pants with uh, with internal tools and deploy and roll back. You know, our employees will be more inclined to be understanding with that than end users would, where you kind of need to have some red-black deploys, canary, deploy to a subset of hosts, see that things stay healthy, roll out more broadly, that, that sort of approach. Initially, when you were talking about it, I was thinking like the sheer number of requests is much higher or the scale is much higher. And then there's something significantly different that I was trying to understand. But it makes a lot more sense that it's less about like 10 times the QPS and more about the experience of your customers and that experience needing to be just a little bit more flawless. Yeah. Are there really any kind of awesome stories or like crazy use cases you saw over the time of owning ABBA that blew your mind for either good or bad reasons? Yeah, I do have a few fun ones. So I remember we did some analysis on the payload that ABBA served to clients and found that somewhere in there, we ha- at that time, we don't have validation over the content length of the payload. So somewhere in there, someone had shipped a blob of JSON that would convert the progress bar in the Spotify app to a green lightsaber for (laughs) the Star Wars anniversary. And I think this might have been an employee-only flag. I don't quite remember, but yeah, that that was a fun one. (laughs) I'm familiar with this feature. It's it's a fun feature, but so not only was it an interesting feature, but the way it was implemented was by like injecting a bunch of JSON into Abba's payload as opposed to like some other type of feature flag. Exactly. Or like a normal type of feature flag, I guess. That's exactly almost like a content manager. That sounds awesome. Why did we stop using Abba? Or even before that, maybe like how did you slowly start moving towards a point where you knew that Abba was going to eventually have to go away? Yeah, I think so the origin of this really comes somewhere in like 2017. At this time, our ambitions around content-based experimentation 
are scaling up considerably. Uh, I think one of the main drivers on this was a pretty significant rework for our free experience, making it more dynamic, making it more user-centric, more oriented around the user's own tastes for the homepage in the free app. So this drove a ton of adoption of that holdout groups pattern. It drove a ton of adoption of more complex test coordination needs, more needs to like ship exclusive tests or split users up more granularly. And so we're relying entirely on that salt hacking approach at that time was one of the big limitations that we ran into. And it became really painful for Spotifyers to coordinate their tests just using that alone. You can imagine you're changing like a random string <laughs> in a text box in the Ava service. And that's that's the entire, and you might be four or five layers down the tree in your feature flagging tree and all of that being coordinated and tracked manually. Yeah. In some cases, even in like spreadsheets, but it was a complex project and we, we really wanted to respond to the the user needs there. So it was the only way we could do it at the time. That was a big one. So that that push into more ambitious things as part of the free tier is a big one. I think the diversification of devices, we talked a little bit about that. We're going into TVs and speakers. These have very different behaviors in terms of when that exposure log should be dispatched, when the user logs in, how state is maintained. And it's interesting, like having BigQuery be able to query those exposure messages in seconds. We're at that time finding things like maybe on iOS over here, all the views for all the tests preload and actually exposure message fires right when they preload for this one subset of a feature that's just in playlist. A lot of those things start being found by our users in, in Spotify, Spotifyers analyzing the tests. And so it really starts to look like we need a, a much more opinionated system for doing that sort of exposure. You mentioned different devices having different exposure logging. Is that really the thing you were saying about like preloading things on iOS? Or is there something like significantly different about the way, I don't know, a TV or something would do exposure logging and tracking? I think some of the examples that come up here is like you may have an experience, say, on a voice speaker that's three or four prompts down the line. And the thing that's actually being measured for the test is like prompt success. So the users are making it through this flow or whatever. And that that's a case where you actually have to couple like the, the prompt being returned correctly to the user and the user getting what they want with the test exposure down the line. So just saying like, oh, this user was thrown into this group for this flag isn't sufficient to know that they actually interacted with the test. You might be pulling it down to tell the speaker which one to use, but they still got to kind of make it through this funnel to get the prompt. So th there's those kinds of places where just the innate properties of the user experience on these different surfaces would change the nature of exposure. So it sounds like it was really just this explosion in multiple different I don't know, dimensions, I guess. Like you mentioned, like the types of experiments we're doing, the number of kind of consumers of experience within the company, and then the number of different devices. So it's like, I don't know, multiple different dimensions where we're drastically growing. So was it really just that ABBA couldn't handle this amount of data and this many different, I don't know what to call it, like degrees of freedom or something like that? I think that's a, a big piece. And there were certain like horizontal constraints that made managing that complexity on any one front pretty challenging. And there that piece about coupling the experiment with the configuration came up a lot because we couldn't in practice on the infrastructure side, say, separate from the use case, like people just trying to roll out new functionality and get no insights from it from experiments in which we need strong exposure guarantees and isolated environments and a good statistical test atop. So 
that was the theme that ran through. And then mapping that out to all the complexity that's being driven by novel needs and analysis and novel needs and targeting. That's where we really started to get to the place where we needed some pretty fundamental architectural redesign. So we figured out that this thing needs to change. Then what? How do you solve this problem once you know it's a big enough problem that it needs solving? Yeah, so around the end of 2017, we're, we're wrapping up that experiment around the free tier. We had had some problems gathering insights from a ton of manual analysis needed. And so we got a small group together to kind of think about how we might approach that differently. And I think there was really three or four people within that group kind of came together and just made a small little team, traveled to Stockholm all together and hacked on it for like, I think it was two weeks. And the main things focused on there were really like the feature flagging system, how we could put that together into a better set of decoupled abstractions, how we could redesign it to be more opinionated about the environment in which it's running on the client devices. That, that was a big thing there. And just make the targeting more flexible. And the other side of the work stream was really focused on the analysis tools. So building up a better capability for actually performing analysis, joining exposure, joining in various types of messages at Spotify and the exposure side, kind of to serve that use case of like more complex semantics around how the user actually gets exposed to the test. And I think these kind of mapped out gradually. There were a f- there were a few more parts to the project that were added as time went on. But those were really the two principal pieces that we kind of decoupled it into. And at that point, I guess it became clear that this wasn't just a few more features on ABBA? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> so then tell me a little bit more about what happens after that. So you have this hack project and you have a feel for this thing needing to get replaced. But at this point, as we just talked about, like Spotify's exploded in multiple different dimensions of complexity. So that's we have to have that same kind of migration conversation at some point, but now it's early. So how do you like start the process of creating a new thing and uh, even deciding what to do with it? Yeah, I think a really critical piece of that was involving a lot of the teams that were working on the actual end-user applications before. So up until that point, like ABBA and the ownership of ABBA was managed essentially like an infrastructure project. So we maintain the back end and the log collection, but we sort of rely on the folks who are embedded in the teams working on the end user experience to maintain these libraries. So maybe you'd have a place where like the implementation for TV was done by the partners team that's also responsible for delivering all the UX of the TV app on Samsung or whatever. So I think involving those folks directly as members in that effort, over time we bring some of that more central into the platform mission, that was a a really big key shift at the time because we could have folks had way more expertise with the specifics of how that process actually worked, how it actually integrated the end user experience. That was super important. And this is some of the same people you talked about before that were doing the crazy stuff like maintaining spreadsheets to manage issues with ABBA and like trying to deal with, um, I I think you called it salt hacking, to kind of figure this out. This was those people. You then started working much closer with them to build a system for supporting those kind of crazy use cases. In some instances, the same folks, yeah. Were there some places in the company where you were really targeting because that's where all of the like crazy difficult experiments are coming from? Or was this really like... The whole company just needed a new experimentation platform. I think as we move forward, most of our most difficult challenges came from the personalization portion of the company. So the part of the company that handles all of our infrastructure and our offerings and our UXs for actually making Spotify feel personalized for the end user. I think that was where a lot of our significant requirements in the new system were driven from. So the the new experimentation platform or the current one we use 
it, it benefits from a lot more of that kind of complex reasoning, whereas ABBA was just more simply straightforward, like a feature flagging system. Some random assignment plus some reasonably good logging. The new system incorporates a lot of battle-tested learnings from really operating a highly dynamic, highly diverse, personalized end-user experience at scale. Yep. And you can imagine just the size of our content catalog alone drives a lot of that complexity. User base plus content catalog, it's a pretty large domain of things that we're working with in that assignment process. Yeah, plus the complexity of the app. So you get three different dimensions where you have tons and tons of complexity all experimenting at the same time. Totally. Thanks a lot. This has been a lot of fun digging into this stuff. Awesome, man. Thanks, Dave. It's fun for me to revisit. Aside from experimentation at Spotify, what, what other stuff do you nerd out about? I enjoy woodworking. Furniture mostly because it's yeah. the most fun, but then mostly learned it to do the kind of utilitarian, build my own stuff and save a bit of money on this cabinet or whatever. <laughs> How'd you get into that? Mostly out of necessity. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the tiny little small odd job that nobody would be interested in being paid to do that then uh, I should probably just learn how to do this. Thanks for listening. Make sure to rate us and hit that follow button so you don't miss the next episode. And you can always send us questions at nerdout at spotify.com. Nerdout Spotify is produced by Spotify's Ted Vergakis and by Seaplane Armada, who also wrote our fabulous theme song. I'm Dave Zolotowski. Thanks for nerding out with us.